Let's talk about insanity on this episode of Pushback. you're concerned about the direction our culture is heading, then maybe it's time to push back. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Johnny, and this is another episode of Pushback. I'm so glad that you're joining me again this week as we're coming to the end of 2023 and the end of season four of my weekly podcast. Uh, it's been certainly a privilege to continue to bring these to you each and every week. Um, I know that you know the probably the definition of insanity. Um, it's doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Uh, that's the kind of the working definition of insanity. And I, I want to give you some examples on this podcast of of exactly that. And I want to use them kind of from current headlines, the things that I've I've noticed this week, because if we can't just sit and hope that things change. That's the heart behind this podcast is we have to be prepared. We have to have knowledge. We have to have understanding. We have to have language so that we can inject truth into the culture and to set and steer the culture. And so often what you see is because of different types of motivations or, or, or different uh, longings or just dysfunction, uh, we continue to do the same thing over and over again and expect or hope magically something changes. Last week, I uh, gave a podcast entitled The Human's Race, and I was discussing, as I have many times before, the notion that race is a subjective term. In fact, it's not really a notion. It's it's been proven scientifically that we are 99.99 plus percent similar in genetics and, and that there really are no races. And that has been proven through the Human Genome Project, which is rarely ever talked about. And yet here we are running this race, as I used as, as the example, the metaphor last week, trying to make sure that we all finish the race at the same line which results in us trying to handicap the race somehow. And the problem isn't the misapplication of the lie. The problem is the lie. And so if you didn't listen to last week's podcast, that'll give you a lot of uh, um, reference for what I'm talking about here as my first example. I was talking to my wife the other day, and I was explaining to her, if I had a patient in the emergency room and and they had a cough or cold or uh, symptoms of pneumonia, and I put up their chest x-ray. And I'm looking at their chest x-ray, but it was the wrong patient. I'm not looking at that patient's chest x-ray. I'm looking at somebody else's chest. If that's the case, no matter what decision I make upon viewing that chest x-ray, no matter what conclusion I make, it is going to be the wrong one. It makes sense, doesn't it? I'm, I'm getting the wrong information. It's not that I don't know what I'm doing. It's not that I can't see a pneumonia on that chest x-ray. It's just the wrong x-ray. 
So no matter what I decide to do, whether I decide to give them antibiotics, whether I decide to admit them to the hospital, whether I decide that this is just viral, go home, you'll be fine. No matter what decision I make, it's going to be the wrong one because I have the wrong information. I believe it's the perfect example of what I've been talking about in this discussion on race is we continue to do the same thing over and over again, which is talking about race itself. When the truth of the matter is that there isn't any race and we need to change the conversation. We need to change the dialogue. And until that happens, it's like looking at the wrong chest x-ray. No matter what decision we make, no matter how many reparations we give, no matter uh, how many times we say we're sorry, no matter how many times we, we appropriate money in some direction or another, it's still the wrong x-ray. It, the answer is always going to be wrong. And isn't that exactly the way it feels? Like our society should be getting better in the terms of race, but we're getting worse. So we have to ask ourselves, why? Why is racism the worst that it's ever been? Maybe it's not the worst it's ever been, but it's not getting better. It's not improving. It's staying the same. Racism is still alive and well. Why is that? It's because it's the wrong x-ray. We're, we're looking at the wrong information. And until we have a revelation of that there are no races, we're going to keep doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. John Roberts, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, declared the way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop, is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. But I would like to take it further. I'm going to say this is per Dr. Johnny. The way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop race. Don't run the race. See, we have to do something different. We have to have a, a mindset shift. Something has to change. It, it would be preposterous today for somebody to hire or to buy a slave. <laughs> we don't do that anymore in the United States of America. It, our culture has completely changed. It, it, it's not, it wouldn't be allowed. It would be ostracized. It would be illegal. It, the person would be arrested. Um, it simply could not stand on its own merit. There's no place for that. Rewind just 200 years and there was a place for that. So something changed, something shifted, the culture shifted toward the better where that would now be a preposterous thing. It would not be even possible here in our culture. And so people could roll their eyes and say, well, race isn't going to go away. And if you just say there isn't any race, well, then it's just burying your head in the sand over all the problems that are around. And you can't keep be colorblind because then you're just turning your back on the people who have had injustice served to them for so many years. And while I understand all of that and why I agree with all of that, we have to have a goal or a target. We have to be moving as a society towards something or it just becomes insanity. Nothing will ever change. If we try to manipulate the race itself somehow, you're still going to have winners and losers. You're still going to have victims and suppressors. No matter any way you slice it, it's like looking at the wrong x-ray. I want to give another example of insanity um, in regards to money and politics, 
it's just a it's just a shift. I just want to give various examples, not necessarily related to each other. But as we're looking at the national debt that's been skyrocketing out of control, and I've been really watching and paying close attention to debates and the politics and the the ramping up for the 2024 election season. I noticed that it's so often, and even in my lifetime over the past several election cycles, this idea of our national debt just gets thrown out in these debate circles. And every politician takes sort of this platitude of, yes, it's horrible. And what are we doing to our children? And, and they, they, they make these statements like, yes, they're, they're, they're mortified by the national debt. And then proceed to do absolutely nothing about it other than contribute more to it. It's doing the same thing over and over and over again and somehow expecting a different result. I don't know how this works. When you spend more money than you have, it never works. It's never worked for me. It's never worked for my family. (laughs) It will never work, period. Has never, will never. Kicking the can down the road and hoping some other generation will deal with it is immoral. In fact, Barack Obama, when he was interviewed either running, campaigning, or for his re-election, he said that the national debt is about morality. And to run up the debt for next generations is an immoral move. He then went on to become the most immoral president (laughs) based on his own standard. If that was the standard, he spent more than any other president. Only for Donald Trump to come alongside and say the national debt is a very big problem and we're going to drain the swamp and we're going to reduce spending, only to become then the most immoral president. Not to be outdone, Joe Biden moves into office and he starts printing money and he spends more money than any president before. By the definition of his former running mate, he's the most immoral president. So what's happening? They lay out these word salads of how important this is and and how it's immoral to do it and yet proceed to do it. Nobody's ever willing to do anything about it. It's called insanity. And the answer is that politics is about re-election. The second that you are elected, it's about getting re-elected. And so a balanced budget amendment, which seems like the most intuitive no-brainer in the history of the world, is never passed. Because it won't get you (laughs) reelected. It's it's hard to talk about, but this is the reality of the insanity in which we live. Biden actually thought printing more money might help, but that's why all the prices went up. That's why you're spending so much more at the grocery store, because the Biden administration has spent wildly and printed more money. And guess what? It never works. It never has. It never will. It's called insanity. Doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. He really thought that that would work. Really smart people actually did. The only way that shifts and the way that moves is for brave politicians to be willing to be (laughs) one-termers, move into the situation and say, this is immoral, we're going to change it. We're going to pass a ballot budget amendment, which is only half the battle because we still have the debt to actually pay. That's still sitting there. It doesn't go poof and magically disappear. 
we need to not make it worse. We have to stop the bleeding first. There's been decades and decades of bleeding. And everybody simply just kicks the can. Here's a little pro tip when you're watching debates and this topic comes up because people feel like they need to talk about it because you can't ignore it. It's the literal elephant in the room. Like we're bankrupting our country and we seem to be doing it on purpose. So we have to address it. But you will notice that politicians all have a quote unquote plan and they will say, now that I'm exposing this, you'll, you'll see it. Watch, watch the debates. They'll say, I have a plan that will balance the budget and reduce the deficit by X percent. And then they kind of mutter by 2055. <laughs> 30 years from now, when I'm long gone and this administration has nothing to do with it, what they're basically saying is there's nothing I can do about it now. But if you just implement my plan and keep electing people that look exactly like me, then it's possible that 30 years from now we'll be able to reduce the budget by 17%. So they come off looking like they have a plan, but please mark my words, they have no plan. And no politician in the last 100 years have actually passed this kind of plan that actually resulted in reductions of the deficit. Why is that? Because they want to get reelected. We have created a culture and a society with our hands out, ready to receive. And for as frustrating as it is to say, it is so hard when something is given to take it away again. Enter comment on the Affordable Care Act. I think the Affordable Care Act is one of the worst things that has been passed in the last 50 years. And you say, well, wait a minute, what's wrong with free health care? Well, let's be super clear. Nothing is free. <laughs> Everything has to get paid for. And so... You may say, well, what about the poor people that don't have money to buy health insurance? They now are covered. Well, make I want to make this very clear. The reason you're paying more for bread, milk, and eggs at the grocery store is paying for the Affordable Care Act. And it disproportionately actually affects the poor. Because I'm not poor. I can go buy my milk and eggs and we're going to be okay. It's the ones who actually have no money that can't afford eggs, can't afford milk, can't afford a mortgage, can't afford rent, can't afford a car payment, can't afford insurance on the car. This is the issue because that disproportionately, as the prices go up, the poor actually get disproportionately affected. Nothing is free. The Affordable Care Act is not affordable. It's, it's bloating the government. It's making the government bigger. The government that is 30 $35 trillion in debt, that government. The reason they passed it in the middle of the night when no one was looking and they didn't even read the paperwork of what they were signing, the reason the Democrats passed it was because once it's given, it's really hard to take it away. And it would help them get reelected. That's the motive. And you can't tell me otherwise. I'm sorry. Money in politics is tricky. And as we're looking at these campaigns and it seems like they're all they're talking about is the war chess, how much money they have increases their likelihood of getting elected. I don't think that's what the founding fathers had in mind. And I believe it's a cultural problem. So what do we do about it? 
It's about voting. It's about holding people accountable. And it's about sitting in that place of history that actually shifts culture. The William Wilberforces of this world that looked at slavery and said, no, this is not cultural. This is this cannot be cultural. Where are the William Wilberforces today that will actually sit and actually run on the platform of reducing debt and only spending the money that we have? It seems crazy that I even have to say that. But instead, we're looking for something for us with our hands out. And unfortunately, I believe that we've become a fat, entitled society to the point, the citizenry now is to the point where it's better to stay home and receive your welfare check than to actually work. The Biden administration has made that possible. For the auto workers saying they want five days of pay for four days of work. That doesn't all, that doesn't feel super culturally American to me either. But that's what happens when the cycle of politicians are money driven and re-election driven. They're going to use money they don't even have to try to entice you to keep them into power and get them reelected. It's insanity is what it is. And we go along and we float in the culture and we say we want to reduce the deficit and we want to cut, 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 but don't take away what belongs to me. Don't take away my entitlements. Don't take away the things that help my family. Don't take away any free money that is heading my direction. And it takes brave politicians to stand in those places. Maybe that's you listening to this podcast. Maybe you would be willing to run, knowing that you might not even get reelected because it's, it's, not, it's not eye candy. It's not sexy. It's not, it's not bright lights and flashing neon signs. It's just good politics, good policy, and it's right. With the time left, I just want to talk about anxiety. I did a podcast called The Anti-Anxiety Recipe. I encourage you to go back because uh, I believe the Bible gives us a solution to this problem. But I have to chuckle. Can I just read this article to you? It says, this is not the way to help depressed teenagers. <laughs> it was uh, released by DNYUZ News on November 18th, so just last month. Ever since the pandemic, when rates of teenage suicide, anxiety, and depression spiked, policymakers around the world have pushed to make mental health resources more broadly available to young people through programming in schools and on social media platforms. Well, that seems like a really good place to start. This strategy is well-intentioned. Traditional therapy can be expensive and time-consuming, and access can be limited. By contrast, large-scale, light-touch interventions, TikTok offerings from Harvard School of Public Health, grief coping workshops in junior high, aim to reach young people where they are and at relatively low cost. I'm sorry that I'm reading this a little bit sarcastically. But there is now reason to think that this approach is risky. Recent studies have found that several of these programs not only failed to help young people, they also made their mental health problems worse. Understanding why these efforts backfired can shed light on how society can and can't help teenagers who are suffering from depression and anxiety. Okay. Consider a social-emotional skills training school program called WISE, led by clinical psychologists in training. It consists of eight weekly hour-long classroom sessions in which students learn to manage their emotions with the help of tools and principles drawn from cognitive behavior therapy and Zen Buddhism. Compared with teenagers who got standard education, the students in WISE reported more depression, more anxiety, more difficulty managing their emotions, and worse relationships with their parents. <laughs> what a disaster. 
By focusing teenagers' attention on mental health issues, these interventions these interventions may have unwittingly exacerbated their problems. An Oxford psychologist calls this phenomenon a prevalence inflation. When greater awareness of mental illness leads people to talk of normal life struggles in terms of symptoms and diagnoses, these sort of labels begin to dictate how people view themselves in ways that can become self-fulfilling. Teenagers who are still developing their identities are especially prone to take psychological labels to heart. Instead of, I am nervous about X, a teenager might say, I can't do X because I have anxiety. A reframing that research shows undermines resilience by encouraging people to view everyday challenges as insurmountable. Well, knock, knock, pudding head. I mean, it makes sense. When we try to just manage emotions, it's going to fail every time. It's called insanity. We do the same thing over and over again. We have mental health issues and we try to just manage their emotions without understanding that there's actually a root to these mental health issues. It doesn't work. Spiritual problems require spiritual solutions. We know that. I encourage you to go listen to the anti-anxiety recipe that's found in scripture. Those are the answers. Anything else that we do or try is called insanity. It doesn't mean there aren't well-meaning people and it doesn't mean that, that therapy isn't helpful. Please don't misunderstand me. We, we need to work through some of our traumas and our difficulties. I get that. But this idea of trying to manage our feelings is a dead-end street. It doesn't work. It's just like spending money you don't have. It doesn't work. It's like just keep talking about race and pretending that there isn't racism. It just doesn't work. Something's got to shift. There's got to be a change. These are just examples of why I believe this podcast and other podcasts need to seek real solutions and require pushback. 180 degree change from what we're doing from the things that don't work when it just doesn't work. And we need to be armed with data and information. And we need to be armed with this phrase. Are you ready? You can write this down. Quote, how's that working out for you? End quote. See, we can throw psychoanalysts at all of our children, but then we have to step back and say, how's that working out for us? And this study has just shown it's made it worse. Then why do we keep doing it? Why are we keep trying it? Because they, they don't have a solution. They don't have any other idea. That's where I believe this podcast can be injected into society, into our cultures, where hopefully I and others can give you an idea of how we can push back. How's it working out for you? And the only way you can ask that question is if you know the truth, the way things aren't working. I believe that $35 trillion of debt isn't great. It's not working. I believe that our battle against racism as a country isn't working. It feels like it's going the wrong direction. And anxiety is in pandemic proportions. More on that probably in a future podcast. People can have beliefs, but they don't know why they believe it. And they don't know what really works. <laughs> and so I believe that we can become armed with information and truth. We can't just tap our heels or cross our fingers and hope that things will be different, my friends. We have to be the change. We have to use data. We have to tell real stories, real testimonies. We need to have language and we need to become experts. I know that's experts is a big, powerful word, but we need to become leading voices on these topics so that people care about what we say. 
See, we set the culture. We set the course for culture in our world today. I know you've heard that before. Hey, we're coming to the end of the year, and and I'm just going to ask a favor. Uh, I'm looking to transition somewhat next year, uh, going into more full-time ministry and the things that I've been doing now. In order for that to happen, uh, our ministry needs to become even stronger financially. Would you be willing to go to gofam.org and make an end-of-the-year donation? If you're a regular listener to this podcast, I'd appreciate you just sewing into this and, and the things that we're doing at GoFam Ministries. You can go to gofam.org and there's a donation button there that you can do. Give a one-time tax-deductible end-of-the-year gift. And maybe even greater than that, would you be willing to become monthly partners with us? It's such an encouragement that people, when people partner with us so that we can continue to set the culture and continue to be the tip of the spear in the things that are happening in this world. I'd be most grateful for that. I appreciate you considering that. So with that being said, thank you again for listening this week, and I look forward to connecting with you again next week. So let's go together now to set and shape the culture. Music